everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are very excited to be joined by Tori Hope Peterson. She is the author of an incredible new memoir that I encourage you all to go out and get. It's called Fostered. One Woman's Powerful Story of Finding Faith and Family Through Foster Care. So welcome, Tori. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Hello, Tori. So I wanted to start, you have a very uh, long, complicated and difficult experience in your childhood. And I wanted to just start by seeing if you could kind of tell us a little bit about your background what it was like growing up for you and your first experience with the child welfare system. So I first went into the foster care system when I was three. Um, but just months later, I was reunited with my mom, which is one of the purposes of the foster care system. But as I got older, my mom's mental illness got worse. And so I had to re-enter the foster care system. And this time I thought, okay, this is like our chance. I went in with my sister who's 10 years younger than me. And I thought, okay, this is a good thing. Like it's our chance um, at escaping the abuse and uh, we're going to have a normal family. And so I was actually pretty excited. But then my sister and I were separated within a month um, of being placed there because I reported abuse um, and they decided that the abuse was a lie, brushed it under the rug. I went to go live in a residential facility and then moved throughout 10 more homes. So I thought I was stepping out of chaos, but really I was stepping into just a different kind of chaos. Can you just, just describe a little bit about what you experienced with your own mother, how her mental illness impacted you and how the system viewed uh, her mental illness as well? Did they recognize it as mental illness? Oh, yeah, they definitely recognized it as mental illness. And they set up a case plan for her, you know, to go to a counselor, see a psychiatrist, uh, get on medication. But I think my mom's mental illness was so bad that I just don't think she has the capacity to even understand that she has a mental illness and work through uh, her case plan, which is why I was never able to be placed back with her. But then there was also that part of me that I didn't want to be placed back with her just because of the abuse. Uh, the abuse had just gotten really bad in our home. And my mom was diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. So you just kind of never knew uh, what was going to set her off into that manic episode and where that was going to take us. And did you just say once you went back, you were in place in 10 different locations? From the time that I entered when I was three to I emancipated the day I turned 18. So people who don't know what that means, it's like you just leave the foster care system. They're no longer responsible for you. You're not a ward of the state. So from the time I entered to the time I left, I lived in 12 different foster homes. And what was the rationale, you think, from the foster care system? Because that obviously sounds very disruptive. So what was the justification for that kind of engagement with you? Well, I think the language that they try to use is that I sabotaged homes. Um, I don't think that's any foster kid's intent. Kids want family. Kids want to be loved. They want to be known. And so I think, you know, so the foster care system doesn't have to take responsibility. They like call it that and put it on the traumatized child. Um, but actually, I think there was ridiculous rules on me. Right now, um, in 2014, there was a policy that passed called the Normalcy Act. But when I was in care, that didn't exist. And so I could not do like anything. I couldn't go to football games. I couldn't go to friends' house unless their parents had background check. 
proof of license and insurance fingerprints. And a lot of people thought that was weird. And so I didn't do much of anything. But, you know, I got kicked out of one home because I didn't want to ride the bus to school. I was 17 and I had a friend come and pick me up and she was taking me to school. The foster parents just were angry that I weren't I wasn't following the rules. And there was a lot of homes like that where I just wanted more freedom and the foster parents didn't really have uh, control of the rules that were put in place. It was um, the caseworkers, the county's policies uh, so that they could protect themselves. But that I think that made me kind of sneaky. I would sneak out and I wasn't doing anything bad. I was never into drugs or alcohol. I really cared. I ran track and I really cared about my sport. I just wanted to like be with people and not be in my house all the time. So because of that, I got kicked out a, a lot. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your interaction with the caseworkers? I know in the book, you sort of, on the one hand, note that they often have too many kids that they're trying to keep track of and that they're just trying to, you know, get you someplace and that they sometimes look the other way or they didn't believe you when you were talking about what was going on in the home. Um, you know, on on balance, what is your sense of sort of the people who work in the system and do you have any thoughts about what could be done to change that? I mean, understanding that, you know, it is a bureaucracy and, you know, there are going to be these rules which sometimes are not very helpful. What could these workers be doing differently and what could we do be doing differently to to get a different kind of worker? Yeah. So my husband and I are foster parents now and uh, we had a placement where there was the caseworker and then there was a CASA. And a CASA, their job is to advocate for what's in the best interest of the child. And the CASA and the caseworker were best friends. And while we didn't like experience um, like a struggle with that firsthand, I just didn't think the relationship was appropriate because CASA, CASAs work for the kid. They're the only person in the caseload that don't have a conflict of interest. While caseworkers, yeah, they probably their heart is to do what's best for the kid. But they have to meet so many requirements from their county, from their agency. And there is a conflict of interest often when it comes to serving families and children. And so when you have someone who is best friends with the person who's advocating for the children, I think that can get really mucky. And so there needs to be more accountability um, and there really needs to be less conflict of interest because Mm -hmm. it just gets too muddy when making decisions in I I also think that there needs to be a lot more accountability around what's placed in the file. So a kid goes from home to home and they have a file that uh, says the worst things I've ever done and the worst things that have ever been done to them. And that's the first impression a foster parent gets of them. And so really kids are like digging themselves out of a 70 foot hole. Um, They have to relive these traumatic things on top of all the trauma that they're already experiencing of being constantly displaced. And they have these labels spoken over them that just really aren't aren't fair. We know that kids are really malleable. Um, and so when we're speaking that over them, that's going to say something to them about who they are. Um, and I think that sometimes what's placed in the file, what I've seen is it's different than the kids that are in our home. Like it's very exaggerative. We're not experiencing these types of um, ridiculous or outrageous behaviors that are written in the file. And that really does affect whether kids get adopted, whether kids enter from home to home. And so I think there needs to be just more accountability in general with caseworkers. Mm. Did you have a CASA? Yes, I did. And I loved her. She's one of the most influential people in 
my caseload. I, so I first had a CASA. She came into the courtroom and my mom uh, was kind of chasing us around the courtroom. She was banging um, on the doors because my CASA wanted us to just be one-on-one. She wanted to talk to me alone. And my mom did not want that to happen. The CASA came out and she like threw my folder down. She was like, no one's going to take this case. This is crazy. Uh, your mom's crazy. And she walked out. And then the, the whole court date had to be rescheduled because like I had a right to an attorney and a right to a CASA. So we didn't even have a court that day. I just That's when I just went into the foster care system immediately because they realized through that interaction that there was some issues that my mom was trying to hide. And I, I had the court case again and I had another CASA who came and she was like, I know what your last CASA said um, and I'm here to stay and I love you and this case is not too hard. We're going to figure it out. And she was the only person in my entire caseload who stayed from the moment I entered that second time to the moment I emancipated. And I did really feel like she was the one person who gave me a voice, who advocated for me, who heard uh, what I wanted and tried to kind of navigate around the normalcy act that hadn't passed yet and give me a normal childhood. Hey, how old were you at that point? And I was going to ask you, how did you develop the ability it sounds like maybe this casa was your anchor but what gave you the strength to endure and at what age did that that happen there were just a bunch of things a bunch of different situations that but i can't help but say that like just god was in it you know and i would say the first time was i was living in my group home and i had to attend group therapy And I heard another girl's story and realized that it really related to mine. And no one liked that girl. And I was like, well, if our stories are similar, I might act similar to her and no one might like me. And so I started to just look at myself like more intentionally. Uh, I was in mandatory therapy at the group home and I started, I was just kind of like, oh, I'm just going through the motions so I can get out of here. But then I was like, maybe I like actually need to take this seriously. So started to do that then. And I just, I think that was just like, God's wisdom because I was like 12, 13. I am very thankful that that's kind of where my head was. Um, because I, I just as a 13 year old, I'm like, wow, I it, it just surprises me that that's where I was. And then I went to go move throughout different homes, and then I had a track coach come into my life, um, my sophomore year of high school, and he just mentored me. He was a great father figure, never really had a father figure, even in foster homes that had a father fathers were just present and he just kind of became a rock to me I was always really excited to go to track practice and one year he was like Tori I think you can be a state champion like I think you can go to go to scholar, go to college on a four-ride scholarship no one had really said anything like that to me like in my community there are people who are like she's gonna be a statistic people like my mom they're like she's gonna be like her mom and I was definitely really scared of that but I kind of grabbed on to this this thing that Scott told me I was like, okay, let's try that. And just kept building my relationship with him. And then that next year, I went to be a four-time state champion in track and field in Ohio. And um, I think that was kind of like the moment that was like the the event where I was like, okay, like I'm not going to be a statistic because it was so tangible. So it sounds like there are a couple of adults, um, you know, who really helped you through this. Is there something that we could be doing I mean, obviously, you mentioned the CASA and the importance of the independence of CASAs. Um, Is there something that we could be doing to encourage 
more adults to mentor young people in the foster care system. I know there are, there are kind of a couple of comments in in your book where you talk about how you know people um, you know were worried that the track coach might might have an inappropriate relationship with you, and that you know people are kind of um, especially men I would imagine might be reluctant to you know be- become your friend or your mentor in this way. Um, but a lot of people might just sort of say like I you know I don't really want to get involved with that. It's you know there's a there's a lot of mess in that person's life. Is there something that where you think you know we we could be doing a better job of you know finding responsible and you know helpful adults to be in the lives of foster children, even if they're not foster parents? Oh, yeah. I always say you don't have to be a foster parent to be involved in foster care. And that's where, like, foster care just does their marketing all wrong because all the people that had, like, the biggest influence in my life are not foster parents. And you can just, you can be a mentor. And you can just, like, use what you have right in front of you. So, like, my track coach, he was just a track coach. And people are like, oh, well, was he a teacher? Did he work for a nonprofit? But, like, he was a factory worker. And then when he got out of the factory, he went to go be a track coach. And so, uh, yeah, I just encourage people, like, where are you in your life and what can you use to serve, like, that one or two kids in front of you? There was also a, a woman. Her name was Tanya. And I think the best thing that she did for me was that she let me in her home. And I, I think that was so good because I didn't know, like, how do you be a good mom? How do you be a good wife. I knew those were things that I wanted to be, but didn't have the model for it. Uh, How you keep a clean home. My mom uh, really struggles with hoarding. And so when Tanya let me into her home, I just got to watch her from her. I was like, wow, this is like what I want to be like. And I just watch her. Okay. This is what I need to do to be like this, to be a good mom. I watched her as she mothered. I watched her as she was a faithful wife. And I still do. She's one of my closest people, mentors, ministers to this day. And um, she has really, her, her life has molded so much of my character and who I want to be, but it's because she let me into her home, you know, fearlessly. And I think when it comes to men who are scared of letting people, you know, young women in, especially closely, I think that's a very legitimate fear. You know, we have to be wise at the same time, you know, I think when I look at my track coach, what he did was that the relationship built over time. So I didn't go, you know, we weren't like not in public for like two years. We were just doing track stuff. And then it was that third year that, you know, he started inviting me into his home and he would cook me dinner. And then I was like living with him. My track coach ended up taking me in um, and adopting me. And he's who my kids call grandpa and walked me down the aisle at my wedding. I think that's another thing that the foster care system and there's something wrong there because we put these kids in a home with strangers. Uh, we really should look at kinship care first, right? Because the, that relationship is developed, you know, over time. And so it's not so abrupt. Do you ever think about how adoption could play a different role here? I mean, these are difficult questions, but as your, as your mom, do you think she ever even considered that? Or how do we create that is another pathway of creating the kind of family that, as you say, everyone's seeking. You know, that is kind of a weird thing, right? Because I still have my mom. My mom will always be my mom and I love her. But at the same time, I always wanted to be adopted. I always wanted to be in a family. Um, And I don't know if I have like a very clear answer to that on, you know, what is best for a child outside of maybe asking them, you know, what they want. But at the same time, like, their children and I don't know if they know but 
I don't know. I think that especially when children still have biological families in their mm-hmm. life, adoption can be very complex. I love adoption because it's the heart. It's the heart of God, right? He adopts us in, into his heart, into his kingdom, into his family. You know, when it comes to having the right answer, I don't know. But I, I know that God adopts us and I want to reflect him. And I think that as Christians, we're meant to reflect him. So I think adoption is a good way to do it. I wanted to ask you as kind of a, a twofer. So one thing that you wrote about in the book is that you basically stayed in the same school system through most of your childhood, even though you were moving around from home to home. I was wondering if you could talk about that and also, you know, a little bit about your religious journey and and kind of what is the role of faith communities in your upbringing. And also, you know, I know you go around and talk and speak in front of church groups now, too. What is the role generally of, of faith communities in um, in helping foster children? I was in a really good, I was in a public school, but it was a very good small country school. Got a very good education, I felt, um, especially for a public school. I think that was so good because I did get very good grades um, and I was on track to be valedictorian. I think that they saw that and they wanted to try and encourage that. And um, I was also a part of my track team of, Two of the four state championships that I won were with the relay. And so, you know, I would have lost that relay um, if I would have moved. And I think that really would have changed the trajectory of my life because I was always competing um, against really competitive curls. They were right on my team. That helps with training a lot. And so, yeah, I'm really thankful that they kept me in the same school. Uh, My teachers knew me really well. And I think that they really gave me a lot of extra care because of my situation, which I'm also very thankful for. And when it comes to my, you know, religious journey, I had a foster mom who was taking me to church every Sunday and she just really like reflected. I felt like she just reflected Jesus and that she was loving and kind and sacrificial and compassionate. And there were people in my life, foster parents who proclaimed the name of Jesus and weren't worth that. They abused their kids behind closed doors. And that was very confusing to me. And so I think when she showed me, you know, the opposite of that, I just became more curious about like, what could, you know, being a Christian be? What does accepting God really mean? And just started listening in church and my church, the church she was taking me to is the church that I still go to today. Um, They were very involved in the foster care system and cared a lot about people who just came from hard places. And that was really compelling to me because I was a person who came from a hard place and I never really felt like I belonged in church or like I belonged in, and right that I know now that that's exactly who like the church wants to love, but I didn't, I think when you're just like so broken and you think that there's so much wrong with you, you don't know that, but I really felt like they um, just watching them live that out with their own families, leadership of the church, And then they never had any expectations on me. They just kind of walked with me. You know, they didn't know that I was going to be on this podcast talking about them like 10 years later. They didn't know that I was going to be a success story, but they still loved me where I was. That was just very compelling to me. And I was also a bully in high school. I was kind of mean and I didn't want to be mean. And I knew that like I needed, I needed Jesus's healing to be kind and to be like the people that I wanted to be like who were in the church. And so I was just like, okay, Jesus, like change me. Like people say you can. And I really do feel like God has transformed me and that he has presented himself to me as like the father that I was always searching for. 
And there's been a lot of comfort and healing in that. Wow. I saw you made a reference to an Abba God. What is that? So Abba, um, it's a translation for daddy or father. And um, I just think it's such an intimate way to address God. Um, I think that I heard about God, you know, when I was growing up, but really heard about him as a judge, um, as someone who was really seeking justice. And that is like, God is that, Um, but he's also like our Abba. He is a father to the orphan. He's a father to the fatherless. Um, He renames us. He reclaims us when we are lost. And um, there's just been so much healing in that because, you know, I was kicked out from home to home to home. Nobody wanted me. But then to understand that, like, God has created a room for me and a kingdom, like, it doesn't even matter if nobody wants me because his opinion trumps every other opinion. He's my father. I don't I don't want to give away the ending of the book, although people will understand what a success story you are from this podcast, just from listening to you talk. So you you became the state champion, you went to college, you eventually ended up at one of our favorite institutions, Hillsdale College. And I wanted to just sort of ask you a little bit about what it was like. There are people who definitely find their way out of a struggle in high school, but then, you know, there is this adjustment going off to a college someplace else going off to a college full of people who've had a very different kind of upbringing from you. And I was wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about what that experience was like as well. Well, I would say that I entered Hillsdale College very judgmental. Um, I was like, you know, these kids here, they don't know what hard things are. These kids here, you know, it's just like kind of judgmental. And um, just thinking that I had it, I had it worse. And then um, I was on the track team. And then, you know, being on a team, it forces you to get to know one another very intimately. You're on a bus every weekend with one another. You're staying in hotels every weekend with another. You really do everything together. You have the same schedule. So you eat together. You sleep, go to sleep at the same time. You're all living in the same house. Yeah, I just got to know that the people there actually faced really, really hard things. And it doesn't matter what your economic status is everyone but I had a friend who yeah she came from a wealthy family but like her dad was an alcoholic and then her dad just unexpectedly he was an alcoholic like her whole life and then just unexpectedly died one day and it was devastating like for our entire team and there are so many stories of those kids who came from really great quote-unquote great places faced really hard things and I'm really thankful that Hillsdale kind of that that environment kind of stripped the the judgment of me of me a little bit I'm probably still a little bit judgmental but um i think that it worked it out of me a, a lot and i i hope that i see people more as god sees them um now you know another thing that i i loved about hillsdale was that people just really cared for people i thought that i really cared for people i thought that i really loved people but then uh, actually attending the college showed me that what, what that really means. Uh, people are just very generous. Obviously, the college like runs off of, of like generous people because they don't take any funds from the government. But, you know, my scholarship was for kids who came who came out of the foster care system. Um, Hillsdale College still has a full ride, multiple full ride scholarships for kids who come out of foster care. Larry Arn ended up like flying me somewhere my senior year for um, a potential job just as a gift. And I, I had a friend who always asked me, like, how can I serve you today? How can I love you today? And that just made such an impression on me. I'm like, I'm going to ask people that question 
So I think that, yeah, Hillsdale was like very different than the place I grew up, but it really showed me a lot of different pieces of who I wanted to be. Tori, it's been amazing speaking with you. Your resilience, your model, your determination and the love that you're bringing is uh, just beautiful and inspiring. Uh, Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been just such such an incredible, I think, inspirational story. And like I said, I encourage people to go ahead and get your book fostered. Thank you again. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, You can get episodes of this podcast at the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And this is a bawling intro. (laughs) Take care, everyone. (laughs) Thanks again, Tori. Thanks, Tori.